The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Good morning. Today's scripture reading comes from Psalm 127, Song of Ascents of Solomon. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. For he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning, everybody. I uh, actually, between services, got a text message from, uh, from somebody in the church uh, who said, Scott, I just want you to know that from, from where I am looking at things, uh, Nathan Tasker and Micah Edmondson are absolute treasures to uh, our church and to our city, and uh, we're so grateful that, that uh, the Lord has added them to our team. And, of course, we could add to that Lee Eric Fesco, who just did the scripture reading, and so many others including those who are leading us. How's that for music in the middle of July? Uh, for church music in the middle of July in a global pandemic, not, not too bad. Uh, the Lord is, is so generous uh, to our community, and I'm very struck by that this morning. Uh, welcome those of you who are here in person. Uh, welcome to the others of you who are uh, also here with us uh, from your living rooms and wherever it is you're dialing in. Uh, online. Uh, We're grateful for uh, all the participation and all of the full presence with Jesus and with the church that is happening, uh, both in person and uh, and digitally for those who uh, are not here in person. I want to remind you, as I do every week, uh, and as Micah did at the beginning of the service, uh, it really helps us uh, to pastor and to lead and to love better if we know that you were here. Uh, that includes those who are, who are here in person. That includes those who are uh, participating online. You can please, and we ask you to please go to christprez.org backslash blackbook. That's one word, blackbook. Uh, and register your participation with us today. We'd be very grateful for that. Uh, also, if, uh, if you regard yourself as a newcomer to Christ Presbyterian Church, and we'll leave that to your definition of a newcomer, uh, but bottom line, a, a newcomer is anyone who wants to know more. We have two opportunities, both of which uh, begin uh, or happen today. First is the shallow dive. Now, uh, that's a about an hour to hour and 15 long newcomers dessert, which is going to take place at 7 p.m. tonight uh, on the breezeway. It's sheltered, so if it rains, it's still happening. Uh, but the breezeway uh, out there is sheltered, and there's plenty of ventilation, and we will, of course, observe all the, the proper social distancing and everything else. But that is for newcomers who want to know more about Christ Prez, our vision, our beliefs, and where we believe the Lord is calling us as a church. And that's the shallow dive. 
dive. The deeper dive is CPC 101. Uh, That's our membership class, and that's also the class uh, that you go to if you want to if you want to know. Uh, uh, you know, the, the deeper uh, sort of reasons and, and purposes behind what we do and why we do it and how we do it. Uh, and uh, that starts this afternoon and that's going to happen uh, digitally. That's going to be an online experience because of the season that we're in. So all you need to do is go to ChristPres.org to the home page. And if you scroll down to the bottom, it's the very first announcement at the bottom under the heading upcoming opportunities for newcomers. Uh, Just click that and it'll tell you all of the details. Hope you can join us. So uh, as has been already been announced, uh, our text today is Psalm 127. We are in the middle of our series on the Psalms of Ascent. And uh, I'll start this way. There's a famous phrase that is used quite often by motivational speakers that leads to more disappointment than it does to triumph. And you've heard it before, I would imagine. It goes like this. If you set your mind to it, you can be anything you want to be, and you can do anything you want to do. Now, anybody who's lived enough life would probably not say yes to the question, has this been fulfilled in your life? Have you been able to be and do anything and everything you have wanted to because you set your mind to it? When I was in high school, I was taken by the Be Like Mike, Mike being Michael Jordan commercials, as a young basketball player. uh, I, like so many Uh, Others looked up to Michael Jordan, still do as what I still believe to be the greatest basketball player of all time. And I thought, you know what? I think I'm going to set my mind and my heart on being the next Michael Jordan. And uh, it was problematic on uh, on a number of levels for me to think that way. It was delusional. Uh, And you get delusional when you happen to be the very best basketball player in a very mediocre region uh, of basketball teams in your state. And so I I had no idea how bad I was. I just thought I was really good uh, because I was doing well against my mediocre uh, competition. It only took one day of college college basketball to uh, convince me that I wasn't even cut out for college basketball, let alone NBA, let alone becoming the best basketball player of all time next to Mike. But there are other areas of life where this disappointment happens, where we set our heart's hopes and we pour ourselves into it and it ends up hurting us. You know, right here, um, you know, in this psalm, the last few verses can actually land pretty painfully for a lot of people. The verses that talk about children being a heritage from the Lord, blessed is the person whose quiver is full of them. Now, of course, children are, 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 are a great gift, the supreme gift, one of the greatest gifts that Patty and my wife have ever experienced is having and getting to raise our two children and watch them become women. But this is the reality as well. It's no guarantees. It's no guarantees it's not going to hurt. You know, Kathy Keller once said that 
She is only as happy at any given time as her most miserable child. You know, I send out a, I send out prayer requests or prayer request invitations every day. If it's your birthday and you are on the Christ Pres email list and we're not going to spam and you have not unsubscribed, you on your birthday will get an email directly from me. Uh, I really do pray for you uh, by name on your birthday. And I also invite you in that email to share with me any additional prayer requests you have. The most frequent prayer request I get is from parents whose hearts have been broken uh, because of things that have happened in the parent-child relationship. And this includes parents who, uh, who have poured their hearts into their children, raised them in the church, raised them uh, with the Bible and, and with, with prayers over them at bedtime, raised them uh, in ways that mirror the ways that God, our perfect Father, raises us and we still rebel against him and we still go astray from him. And these are heartbroken parents who are saying, I haven't failed the promise, but the promise has failed me. The motivational promise that says if you set your heart on anything, you work hard enough, you'll get whatever you want, you have whatever you want. Uh, I hear a lot of parents saying the opposite. We're in a global pandemic. Pharmaceutical companies have been racing to create a vaccine. Some people have actually spent their entire careers trying to accomplish these sorts of things and defeat diseases that keep defeating people. How long have pharmaceutical companies and their employees been trying to defeat cancer? How long have they been trying to defeat Alzheimer's? Some people spend their entire career singularly focused on defeating one single disease, and then their career ends and the problem is still there. It's still taking people's lives. It feels like the promise fails us even when we do our part to not fail the promise. You know, last week, the world lost two civil rights icons in John Lewis and C.T. Vivian. Uh, C.T. Vivian was actually a pastor in Nashville. Many of you are aware of this, both of whom were freedom riders, both of whom uh, marched with uh, Dr. King. But not only that, they were both deputized by Dr. King to, to serve very specific roles in the civil rights movement and the peaceful resistance and the peaceful protest movement that, that, that King started. And both of them died this past week on the same day. And the dream that Dr. King uh, uh, talked about uh, those many years ago, uh, both men died believing that there is still so far to go on this dream. So what I want to do with Psalm 127 is just sit in it and wrestle with these realities, with this motivational promise that, that, that we oftentimes pour ourselves into to do our part, and then we find out that the promise doesn't deliver on itself, at least not yet. The three thoughts today are accept your limits, keep on going, and never doubt that this story can also be your story. So first, accept your limits. The theme of this psalm, we've sung about it, we've prayed over it today, hopefully it's drilling into the heart, that's what good liturgy does, it drills what we're preaching about into the heart as we go. Hopefully you're already marinating in this. Here's the theme, if the Lord doesn't build it, it's not going to get built. 
If the Lord doesn't build the house, if he doesn't protect the city, if he doesn't provide the food, if he doesn't open the womb, all human effort is in vain. That's, that's a very specific word used by a very specific person and a very specific tradition in the scriptures. The tradition of Solomon. Vanity. This is one of only two psalms written by King Solomon, the son of David. He is the author, and he uses the word vanity to describe all existence, all endeavors, all pursuits that the Lord is not in. Some think that Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes, some don't, but it's certainly written from the perspective, a Solomon-like perspective. And vanity is, is a key word. Vanity of vanities. Everything is vanity. It's a very famous phrase from Ecclesiastes. The, the literal Hebrew word or Hebrew translation for that word is vapor. Everything is vapor. Everything goes poof. You know, Bertrand Russell, the British atheist philosopher, put it this way, if you desire glory, if you desire to win, if you desire for the motivational promise to be fulfilled in your life, that you can do anything you want to do, you can be anything you want to be, as long as you set your heart to it enough. Here's what Bertrand Russell said, if you desire glory, you may envy Napoleon, but Napoleon envied Caesar, Caesar envied Alexander, and Alexander, I dare say, envied Hercules, who never existed. But was Hercules meant to exist? I think there's something in each and every one of us that that feels like we ought to be Hercules. And yet, the promise falls so short. The eighth Psalm, David affirms, we have been made just a little bit less than God. And he's referring all the way back to Genesis where it says that male and female were both created in the image and the likeness of God. And if that's not enough to convince you of the greatness for which you and I were made, go to 1 John 3, 2. These are words written by the man who was arguably Jesus' closest friend. He called himself the beloved disciple. The Apostle John, 1 John 3, 2, he says... We will, in the new heaven and the new earth, we will be like Jesus Christ, for we will see him as he is. We are made for glory, and we are held back by the fall. That's the current world in which we live and the current reality in which we live. And what are we supposed to do with this? Here's what the Psalms tell us. Be honest, unless the Lord built it, it's not going to be built. And be sad. Let God make you sad. Let the truth about the curse make you sad. Let the truth about your limitations because of the curse make you feel sad. Lament is a lost art. It's a lost art. In human communities, at least in some human communities, in some human generations. Rolling Stone magazine came out with a list of the top 50 songs of all time. 
And there was only one song of lament on that whole list of 50 songs. It was the Tracks of My Tears by Smokey Robinson. I'm sure you've heard it. You know, many of us, we say to young boys, stop crying like a baby. Stop crying like a little girl. Do we realize what we're saying? When we, do we realize what we're believing as we say these things? We are saying because we are believing that babies don't have anything to contribute to human wisdom when in fact Jesus says if you can't see the world and see the universe and see yourself and see God through the eyes of a little baby, of a little child, you'll never be able to see the kingdom of God in the way that you're supposed to. And here's one of the true things about babies. You know what they're feeling. They feel all the feels. They feel the happy feels. They feel the sad feels. They feel the angry feels. They feel the joyous and warm feels. They feel it all. And they let you know. They never leave you guessing. They're honest people. No masks. They're confessional people. And little girls. Don't cry like a girl. Well, wait a minute. Even in paradise, aren't we told that Adam was incomplete, that he was incomplete without the she? He didn't know what to do with himself without the she. And then all of a sudden, God presents Eve to Adam, and Adam, it says, is complete. He composes poetry. He sings a love song. Flesh of my flesh, bone of my bones. I I finally know who I am. I I finally know more fully who God is because the image is now complete. We realize what we're saying when we tell little boys, don't cry like a baby or don't cry like a girl. We're telling them to be less human. We're telling them to be more of a machine than a person. In saying yes to to positive feelings and no to negative ones, it reveals an emotional anemia in us. God, in whose image we have been created, got sad. Shortest and one of the most powerful verses in the Bible, Jesus wept. Ephesians chapter 4, the Holy Spirit gets grieved, especially when there's bitterness, slander, anger, and malice occurring between people made in God's image. God got angry, especially in Old Testament times. We read about this through the prophets. He got angry at idolatry. He got angry at Sabbath breaking. He got angry at greed and self-centeredness and injustice. He got angry at those things. Jesus flipped tables because of the corruption of worship that was happening. Jesus got scared and he expressed it and made sure it got written down for us. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he experienced fear. Father, please don't let this cup come to pass of suffering, of the cross, If it can pass, please let it pass. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. The most mature bearers of the image of God, the most mature human beings are those who can feel fully and express and experience the full range of human emotion. Psalm 126, that was last week. It was a psalm about jubilance and joy. This week, it's a psalm about disappointment, about our limitations. 
You take all of the psalms and you get the full range and you can add warm affection. You can add laughter. You can add beauty. You can also add complaining and lament and hurt and anger and prophetic protest and even prayerful protest. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? So accept your limits. The second thing he says is keep on going. Lord, establish the work of our hands. Let the favor of the Lord rest upon us, establish the work of our hands. Nowhere does Solomon or the Bible say, let go and let God. In other words, all the, all the you know, action and work and labor belongs to God, and I just sit here and wait for it all to happen to me. Happen to me now, now there... I can go down certain rabbit trails and we have certain theological debates and clarification points on that comment and everything. I'm a reformed guy. I believe in the Westminster Confession. Start to finish. Salvation comes from God. By grace we've been saved through faith. Even the faith is a gift from God. I affirm all that. Can't see the kingdom unless you're born again. Okay, so as long as we've established, we agree on that. God is not saying, Solomon is not saying, forget about it. God doesn't do it, it's not going to happen anyway, so I have no participation here. There are two great commissions in the Bible. The one that, that, that many of us are most familiar with are the one where Jesus says, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything I commanded you, baptizing them in the triune name. But the, the, there was a great commission that came before this that God said, not only to Adam and Eve, but the whole human race, tend my garden, cultivate, make culture, out of, my wor- out of my earth, out of my world. Give names to the animals. Work the garden. Tend to it. Grow things. Build things. I, one, of the, one of the things that uh, one of my mentors, Tim Keller, is well known for saying is that, you know, it, it's more of an observation than a statement, that, that history began in a garden and it ends in a city. That means that there's involvement between the early chapters of Genesis and the later chapters of Revelation that we get to be part of, that we get to participate in. Worship isn't just about the liturgy that we do on Sunday mornings. Worship is about, also about the liturgy of our lives and the rhythm of our lives of, of six days of work and one day of rest and worship and community. Establish the work of our hands. You know, you look at Israel, these are the Psalms of Ascent. Israel's traveling up the hill, you know, to, to the central place of worship, the Jerusalem temple. And, and some people, the first people who, had to, to, who sung this song and, and who were going up that hill as they sung this song had to do so through significant effort to ascend to the temple. Some had to travel long distances. Others had to fight off bandits and flesh-eating wild animals in order to get to the place of rest. In the place of Sabbath, the builder, to use Solomon's words, had to show up and swing the hammer. The watchman had to keep eyes open, both eyes open in the dark while the rest of the world slept. The eater had to open her mouth and chew and swallow. Couples desiring children had to do their part. The work of our hands, it's part pain, it's part pleasure, and God is in all of it. You know, there's this passage in Philippians chapter 2 that I think helps us understand this uh, 
on an even deeper level, where it says that, that Christians, those who identify as followers of and believers in Jesus Christ, are to work out their salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who works in you to will and to act according to his purpose. It doesn't say work on your salvation. It doesn't say work for your salvation. It says to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. In other words, to, 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 to work the muscles that God put on you without your participation, with your participation. God's given you the raw material of his spirit dwelling in you, of the gospel of Jesus Christ that declares your forgiveness and your pardon and your redeemed and healed future. Now, exercise that. Participate. Have a liturgy of life, six days work, one day rest, worship, community, every week of your life. Put into practice the things that God has called you to. Work it out. You know, at age 52, I, I, I go to the gym or do some other form of, of exercise about six days a week now. It used to be that when I was trying to be like Michael Jordan, my workouts were about building strength. Now my workouts are more about slowing the decay. Both are legitimate. Christianity is both an advancement movement and a resistance movement. Christianity is the movement of all movements to advance the good and to resist that which is evil, to simultaneously hate what is evil and cling to and, and push forward, I might add, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, but to do justly and love mercy and walk humbly with him. This does raise a good question, though. Why try if we're all going to die? Why try if we got to where we got through applying all of this instruction, you know, builders building, watchmen watching, eaters eating, couples doing what they need to do to have children, at least doing their part, to be fruitful and multiply, and we got to January 2020 and everything was humming and then a pandemic hit and that pandemic is killing jobs, it's killing social life, it's killing church life, it's killing businesses, it's killing economies, it's killing people. What's the point? Why not just join Shakespeare's, you know, statement in Macbeth that life is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing, life is a you know what and then you die. Why not just be fatalist? Why not just give up? It's too frustrating. It's too heartbreaking to keep on going. Feels more authentic and honest to be cynical. If everything is vanity, if everything is vapor, unless God is the builder, whether you are the builder or the watchman or the eater or the parent, why keep on going? Three reasons. Because of what is, because of what will be, and because of what was. And I'll close with those three thoughts. First of all, what is? This is what's true about right now. God is always in the hard places. God never removes himself from the meek and lowly and downtrodden 
places. In fact, that's where he prefers to show up and stay. Remember how he came and remember how he left. He came in poverty with refugee status. He became a man by choice of no reputation, considered a fool by the world's wise, stone that causes men to stumble, a rock that makes them fall, man of no reputation, nothing about his physical appearance that we should esteem him. In fact, we esteemed him not. He came to his own, but his own didn't receive him. Despised and rejected. He goes to the low place, which means he goes to your low place and my low place, where the lepers are and the paralytics and the victims of injustice and those who are overlooked and those who are poor and weak and ashamed. That's who Jesus is and that's where Jesus goes. He's the one who says, I will never leave you and I will always be with you. One of the most pronounced pictures of belief in this reality that the Lord is always with us and the Lord is always working for us is the testimony of Corrie ten Boom, who along with her sister as Christians went into Nazi Germany on a rescue mission for the Jews who were being tortured and killed by Hitler. And they ended up becoming detained eventually in one of the Nazi concentration camps. And they were placed in a room. It was a hot room. It had no uh, ventilation. It, it, it had no HVAC. Uh, and, you know, it was a room filled with sadness, filled with fear. Because soon enough, officers would come and they would call people's names and take them, uh, you know, to their death. And that to make matters worse, this, this room that they were detained in was infested with fleas that would bite the people and reproduce and bite the people and reproduce. And Betsy and Corey at one point decided together that they were going to make a daily practice together of thanking God for the fleas. Because the fleas were the one and only incentive for the Nazi soldiers not to come very often to the room where they were detained. We fear the soldiers, but the soldiers fear the fleas, and so let's thank God for the fleas. God is in the suffering if we will see him. And even if we don't see him, he is still there. And then what will be you know, C.S. Lewis in The Great Divorce talks about how we mortals misunderstand the way that the universe works and, and the place of God in the hard places. Lewis writes that mortals say of some temporal suffering or, or temporary suffering, which, by the way, all suffering for the believer is temporary. But mortals will say of some temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it. Not knowing, Lewis goes on, that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. His close friend, J.R.R. Tolkien, wrote a short story that I've, I've 
told to this community, and I, I, I admire myself for my self-control for waiting an entire 13 months since the last time I told it, because it's my favorite story outside the Bible. Leaf by Niggle. Mallory knows it because she's heard it from me five times from this pulpit. And then every year during Gotham and, and otherwise... Tolkien wrote a, a short story called Leaf by Niggle as a cathartic experience to comfort himself because of the frustration he felt about work that he was doing that he was sure was going nowhere. And it was his life's work. And it's a story about this little artist. Tolkien saw himself in the artist, and the artist's name is Niggle, and he was commissioned by City Hall in his small town to paint a, a mural, whatever he wants to paint, on the side of City Hall. And so he, just, he gets this grand vision for a tree of life. And, 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 and he starts his project, and he gets the painter's version of writer's block. And for the rest of his life and the rest of his career, all he's able to do is eke out one leaf, one painted leaf, on the side of that building. And then he dies. And then creatively, Tolkien... Tolkien puts Niggle on a train that's taking him to heaven. And while he's on that train, he sees in the distance a vaguely familiar, blurred, dim something. And, and, and there's this pull that he, he feels. And so he says to the conductor, please stop the train, please stop the train. They stop the train. He gets off. He walks up to the vague, distant thing, and he's up close, and he sees that it's the entire tree of life that he had envisioned himself creating. And in that tree of life is the leaf that was painted by Niggle, his contribution, his part in taking the garden and turning it into a city. And at the end, you know, Niggle looks at, at that tree of life and says, it's all a gift. It's all a gift. This was Tolkien's way of dealing with his heartache and frustration, knowing that this life's work of his called the Lord of the Rings would go nowhere. We just don't know. We just don't know what God is up to. Do you guys know that Isaiah never met a single person who liked his preaching? Did you know that? When God calls Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, he says, I want you to preach. And if you've ever read Isaiah, it's some of the most beautiful, you know, it's one of, it's one of the most, if not the most beautiful compliment, compl compilation of words that's ever been assembled in the history of the universe. It's gorgeous. Handel's Messiah is built around it. The New Testament quotes Isaiah more than any other Old Testament book. Isaiah gives this vivid description of, of, of the suffering servant Jesus Christ in, in, in the, the, the 50s chapters. Gorgeous. Isaiah in his lifetime was only rejected and, and, and sawn in two ultimately by his congregation. He would have never known, would he? Which brings me to the last thought very briefly. Never doubt that this story can also be your story. One thing about Solomon, the author here, is that Solomon, in his old age, would have been, no doubt, plagued with some regrets. He's a man who starts really well. If you remember, if you're a Bible reader, you might remember the beginning of Solomon's reign as king. God comes to him and says, ask me for anything you want. He could have asked for wealth and fame and power and good luck. He could have asked for all of it. 
But instead, he says, Lord, I'm not old enough or wise enough to lead this nation. All all I ask is for wisdom. And so God gives him wisdom. And God also gives him all the other things he didn't ask for, uh, but could have. And Solomon writes a good number of the Proverbs, which is the book of wisdom. The thing about Solomon is later on in life, he he finished poorly because the man, the young man who had both feet in heaven and his heart there, his affluenza got to him, having everything, ease and comfort, power, and all of a sudden, he takes one of those feet at least and puts it in the world and anchors it there. And you get this man who's got the brains of Einstein, the resources of Jeff Bezos, but tragically also the pride and materialism and libido of Jeffrey Epstein. He ends very poorly. And yet there's a saving grace for him. Even if you are, your, even if you are the project that you're frustrated with, even if you are the project that you wonder, is the Lord in the building of this house? Because eh, I'm, I'm actually worse in some ways, if I'm being honest, than I was before I was a Christian. I know non-Christians who are better moral people than I am. And I've been one for, I've been a Christian for X number of years. Right? Uh, have you ever had that secret thought? What does that have to do with Solomon's regret? Well, when he writes words like this, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. He had to, he had to, the thought had to have crossed his mind that he was a child once. And his brother Absalom, who tried to steal the throne from their father David, was a child once. Hardly a heritage. And Solomon must at least in the recesses in the back of his mind, had his own origin story to wrestle with. What was his origin? It's right there in Matthew chapter 1, verse 6, where it says, Jesse was the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. If we go back to 2 Samuel 12, we, we, we see and read about all of the circumstances surrounding the gift and heritage of Solomon to David. We also see that, that David is given a heritage, not only of a son of promise, but also a truth-telling friend in the prophet Nathan, a merciful God who tells him, even though you deserve to die for what you've done, you're not going to and the heritage of a forgiving woman. Could you imagine what Bathsheba had to go through in order to bring her own heart to the point where she would say yes to marrying David? Who did not have a consensual thing with Bathsheba. The the text is very clear that David saw her and he took her. He saw her, he sent for her, and he took her. And yet this woman, the grace of God, this big through another human being. She ends up marrying the guy. And they have Solomon. 
It says that God opens Bathsheba's womb. They give birth to a young man named Solomon, whose name means peace. But the Lord added a second name and called Solomon Jedidiah, which means beloved of God. And then later on, to, to, to sort of put the capstone on all of it, Jesus identifies himself as the son of David. That that's, seems to be his favorite self-reference. Son of man and son of David. Sin and sorrow. If I, if I have a responsibility in the course of my tenure here at Christ Pres to convince you of one thing, and only one thing, it's that your sin and sorrow do not disgust Jesus. They draw him. They summon him. They invite him to the place where he wants to be and the place where he came to be. You know, Jack Miller said that the grace of God runs downhill. And so to know the grace of God and to taste and experience the grace of God in its fullest, you've got to get into the valleys. You've got to be down there where the lepers dwell and where the paralytics dwell and where the prostitutes dwell and, and the, the tax collector crooks dwell those that Jesus welcomed and ate with, where they dwell, that's where we have to go. Jesus is not repelled by your sin and your sorrow. He is drawn toward your sin and your sorrow as a healer. So perhaps our deepest offense is not the things that we have done, but our belief that God's posture toward us because of them is a posture of disgust as opposed to his actual posture, which is mercy. He's meek and he's humble in heart. He welcomes the weakest and the vilest and the poor. You know, Brennan Manning gets the last word in today's sermon. Brennan Manning was a recovering alcoholic when he wrote these words an elapsed priest from the Catholic tradition. But somehow along the way, the grace of God had run downhill and gotten a hold of him in those low places, and he became Brennan Manning, the writer. Here's one of the things he said. Because salvation by grace is true, I believe that among the countless number of people standing in front of the throne and of the Lamb of God dressed in white robes in glory, I shall see the prostitute who tearfully told me she could find no other employment to support her two-year-old son. I shall see the woman who had an abortion and is haunted by guilt and remorse, the businessman besieged with debt who sold his integrity in a series of desperate transactions, the insecure clergyman addicted to being liked, who never challenged his people from the pulpit and longed for unconditional love, the sexually abused teen molested by his father and now selling his body on the street. There they are. There we are. The multitude who so wanted to be faithful, who at times got defeated, soiled by life, and bested by trials, wearing the bloodied garments of life's tribulations, but through it all, clung to faith. 
and I might add, to a father who never has to ask his kids for forgiveness after a bad Saturday, but who is always happy to give it. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, as we approach your table, would you enable us to both rest in and properly lament over our limits. We are not yet what you are making us to be. And would you give us the strength through the bread and through the cup to keep on going, to stay faithful? And would you give us the grace, Father, through the body broken for us and through the cup shed and poured out for us? to know beyond a shadow of any doubt that this story is also in Jesus Christ and because of Jesus Christ, our story. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.